This is Legal and Compliance Insights from Control Risks, a global specialist risk consultancy. This is the podcast helping you navigate the legal and compliance landscape wherever your business takes you. Welcome to Legal and Compliance Insights. I'm Lorna Van Os, an Associate Director in Controlist London office. I manage disputes-driven investigations, helping clients in contentious situations to find the information or intelligence they need to build their case or inform their strategy. I'm here today with my colleagues Frida Owino and Patrick Sewell to discuss data leaks, hacks and data brokering and their impact on the world of investigations. Frida, Patrick, let's start by hearing a bit about the work each of you does. Hi, I'm Frida Owino. I'm based in Control Risks Nairobi office, and I lead on our business intelligence and investigations practice in East Africa and manage a wide range of projects and assignments in the rest of the continent. While majority of this work focuses on reputational and regulatory risks for clients, I regularly support LONA on our disputes and litigation work, which includes today's topic of discussion, data leaks. I'm a lawyer by training and a certified fraud examiner. I'm Patrick. I'm a consultant for the Russia and CIS Business Intelligence Department. So I conduct due diligence and dispute support investigations. Uh, Whenever the subjects of those investigations originate from or have some kind of nexus to Russia and the surrounding region. We name that surrounding region in different ways. None of them are exactly ideal. Uh, We continue to use the designation Russia and the CIS for the time being. I'll avoid the minefield of explaining kind of what that means, but basically what it means in practical terms is that uh, I spend most of my time working on Russia, but also quite a lot assisting clients with proposed or existing investments in Ukraine, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, and a little bit more rarely with other Central Asian, South Caucasian or Baltic states. So the information I gather to assist those clients comes from public record sources, uh, comes from subscription databases, and comes from interviews that we do with our network in the region. Been with Control Risks now for four years. Uh, Control Risks was my first full-time job in the corporate investigations industry, and previously I worked in Russia as a journalist and in the media. So, from WikiLeaks to the Pandora Papers, which were released last year, over the past fifteen or so years, we've seen a huge increase in the amount of data that's being leaked into the public domain, and this has inevitably had a big impact on investigative work. And by that, I mean both for journalists and for the investigations that we carry out as corporate investigators. Let's start by talking about some of the big stories published by investigative reporters in recent years. Over the past decade, the International Consortium for Investigative Journalism, that's the ICIJ, an independent global network of investigative journalists and media organizations, has been at the forefront of data leaks, leaking data on hundreds of thousands of companies through, for example, the Panama Papers, the Paradise Papers, and more. We've also seen leaks from other organizations, such as a platform for whistleblowers in Africa, which most recently leaked the Congo holdup. So the ICIJ and other organizations have shown light on the vast and complex systems used by public officials and their associates to launder money, avoid tax and embezzle public funds. Overall, this has completely changed the way we think about investigating matters such as beneficial ownership, money laundering, and sanctions exposure. In Africa, for example, the most notable leaks in recent years has been the Luanda leaks of January 2020, which implicated Isabel dos Santos, the daughter of former president of Angola, Jose Eduardo dos Santos. For context, 
Dos Santos, who passed away last month, was Angola's head of state for 38 years. The Luanda Lakes showed how Isabel herself, a former head of the Angolan state-owned oil company Sonangol, and her late husband had siphoned off nearly $1 billion of state funds. As a result of the Luanda Lakes, Isabel and companies linked to her were subjected to regulatory scrutiny and enforcement action not only in Angola, but also in Portugal, where most of her interests were based. In January this year, the U.S. government sanctioned Isabel and two former senior government officials uh, in Angola for what it termed as significant corruption. Again, in February this year, the European Banking Authority concluded its investigation on the steps taken by authorities in the EU to assess money laundering and terrorist financing risks in response to ICIJ's observation that financial institutions in the EU may have been handling the proceeds of corruption in light of the Luanda leaks. Such an interesting example of how the Luanda leaks has such far-reaching potential and it's actually resulted in concrete actions taken by law enforcement and sanctions in the international community. Patrick, um, based on your expertise in Russia and the surrounding region, is there anything that's kind of comparable to the Luanda leaks? Maybe not comparable in terms of leading to real-world kind of consequences for the leaders of uh, these countries. Um, but in terms of generating like a lot of resonance in the media and uh, generating a lot of leads, both for journalists and for corporate investigators in their work, um, I mean, one of the really first big data leaks of this kind of series of Panama Papers, Paradise Papers, you know, there's been a lot of them, right? One of the really first big ones was was the Panama Paper leak in 2016. Um, so one of the real kind of um, leading scoops of, of this uh, Panama Papers leak uh, was a headline figure that we often saw in the press here in, in the UK and kind of in many other countries um, concerning a secret fortune belonging to Vladimir Putin of $2 billion. So, of course, you know, that figure was was just like like that, like a headline figure, you know, $2 billion. Um, and when we have these leaks, we don't receive some kind of, you know, keys to the kingdom or... Um, some document which like shows us exactly, um, you know, that Putin has this kind of offshore empire and connecting all the dots. What we have are a lot of quite isolated company records, uh, shareholding certificates, sometimes like name transactions between companies, and then a lot of very clever journalists at the kind of organizations that Freda mentioned, like ICIJ and their partner institutions. They put all these together and, you know, they try and come up with some kind of relevant and interesting investigation. For Russia and for Putin, you know, they came up with this headline figure. Basically, it was adding up a lot of transactions that they saw connected to companies that were connected to people who are connected to Putin. Sorry, I said connected a lot there, but I think you get the idea. It's kind of how complicated it is. So some of these people were Putin's um, friends, basically, people who are shareholders of a bank in Russia called Bank Rasia. Uh, which is the bank that was uh, dubbed by the Department of Justice in the US as like Putin's personal piggy bank. Uh, so these are people that he has been close friends with for 30 plus years. Um, there's like intermarriages here between, you know, these families and they've had business interests together throughout all of their adult, adult lives, basically. In particular, one kind of figure that was quite new. I mean, all of these friends of Putin, they've been known about in the media for a long time. And, you know, that was kind of no surprises, but one 
figure who was um, seen through this Panama Papers leak, who was identified as the uh, director in uh, some of the companies that were connected to Putin's friends, was a guy called Sergei Raldugin. Uh, and this guy hadn't been kind of uh, observed much in the media before, but actually it turns out that he's one of Putin's best friends. He was the godfather to one of Putin's children. Uh, he was apparently the man who introduced Putin to his wife, uh, his now ex-wife, of course. Um, and this guy was a cellist, just a kind of normal cellist from St. Petersburg. But it turned out that actually um, the leaked documents showed that he was the director of companies that had received um, loans from Russian state banks that looked like they were designed in such a way as basically to never be paid off. Um so Sergei Raldugin kind of became something like a meme in in Russian culture, and even one of the today one of the leading like unofficial sources of information where we sometimes gather rumors about corruption and allegations and accusations of embezzlement uh, against leading Russian politicians. This Telegram channel is called like the Cello Case, as if you know, kind of Sergei Raldugin's Cello Case is is where all the secrets to the kingdom are kept. Fascinating. I think for me, that investigation as well, just, just shocking how extensive all this um, activity is, hundreds of companies, the sheer number of associates, it really is very pervasive. And kind of going from the very broad um, journalistic investigations to the very targeted work that we do as corporate investigators, the data released in these big data leaks can be critical to our research. And to greater or le lesser extents, leaked data sets and analysis of them undertaken by journalists are available online and they are, can be searched. And this means that when working for clients who find themselves in litigation or arbitration, using these data sets might throw up links between seemingly unrelated parties or reveal the beneficial ownership of an offshore company. And that can prove critical to our client's case. Exactly, Lona. Um, going back to the Luanda leaks, we, following the release of these companies that had been linked to the centers and which were believed to have been used in embezzling and siphoning public funds from the Angolan state. We received several inquiries from multiple clients uh, who are operating in Angola or looking to operate in Angola and particularly wanting to understand the exposure to potential wrongdoing by Isabel and her associates, uh, just keeping in mind that um, the, the Angolan state uh, was already investigating um, Isabel and looking to recover assets that uh, were believed to have been embezzled from the state. So one of this was a request from a global company uh, for a comprehensive review of any overlap between its interests in Angola and any entities or individuals that were associated with Isabel in anticipation of regulatory scrutiny or possibly coming under investigation by Angolan authorities. Through our data analytics team and our business intelligence teams who are experts in reviewing uh, large amounts of data, uh, corporate records, and even retrieving um, some of these records to verify uh, the information that had been shared by ICIJ, as well as other sources, uh, we're able to assess our clients' exposure to Isabel's interests in Angola and internationally. We did uh, what we called a relationship mapping of all these uh, entities and identified known and suspected associated corporate interests in which um, Isabel had direct or indirect um, interests. 
We then cross-referenced our client's known and suspected interactions with Isabel in order to identify any potential points of reputational or regulatory exposure. Another way that the landscape of investigations has changed in the last few years is the emergence of data brokers, who are people who basically obtain and sell private data that's been leaked either from government databases um, or even company databases. Patrick, this is something you hear a lot about in the context of Russian investigations. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I'm sure there's probably a lot of really great stuff going on in other jurisdictions as well. But I mean, Russia is kind of the one that I can speak to. And and I can tell you that Russia is quite an interesting country in terms of the experience and talent of the investigative journalists who work there uh, and also the kind of data rich environment. So a lot of data is captured but also a lot of data is leaked. So there's real problems, essentially problems with corruption, uh, problems with you know low-level or mid-level kind of managers who work in private companies or officials who work in uh, public sector organizations who for sometimes not a huge amount of money will sell large databases of obviously private data. So as you say, these can be, this can be um, you know, government data, this can be telecoms companies, passenger manifests from airlines. There's been a few quite notable investigations in Russia that have combined all of this data to come up with some quite remarkable findings, really. I think probably most people listening to this will be aware of the assassination attempts, unsuccessful, um, of Sergei Skripal in 2018, who was a former uh, FSB and KGB agent. Um, and of Alexei Navalny, the leading oppositionist in Russia in 2020. So, as I said, both attempts, thankfully, unsuccessful. Um, but both attempts were investigated by teams which combined a group of investigative journalists in Russia called The Insider and a group of investigative journalists uh, based in the UK and some other jurisdictions uh, called Bellingcat. So they acquired all of this kind of leaked data that we've been talking about, right, from these data brokers. And they put it all together and they could show with really remarkable accuracy and remarkable um, like depth, basically, the exact movements, the conversations over you know months before these um, unsuccessful assassination attempts between a lot of people who they could then quite easily prove were... Um, FSB agents. You know, they could prove this because they had addresses where known FSB agents lived. They had cars that were registered to the um, main office of uh, FSB and GRU is another Russian agency which was involved in this as well. Um, so they could kind of put together all these data points and, and really quite comprehensively and convincingly demonstrate that these were uh, obviously Russian military intelligence operations um, and show who was attempting to uh, undertake these operations and, and essentially um, who were the perpetrators. Leaving aside, obviously, the ethical implications of um, orchestrating an assassination attempt, <laughs> there are obviously some ethical and legal implications at play when it comes to how the journalists were doing this research. After all, this is effectively trading private data, personal, personal data on an information black market. Absolutely, yeah. These journalists that I referred to at The Insider, uh, Bellingcat, a couple of other organizations as well, like Vashni Story, which is uh, Raman Anin. Um, they've absolutely dealt with this problem head on. They've been asked these questions. Um, and of course, they respond um, with the public interest argument, you know, which for, as, as, as you kind of joked yourself, you know, for 
assassination attempts by uh, states is you know a pretty strong public interest argument. There was another one, for example, um, that involved the former son-in-law of uh, Vladimir Putin. This investigation was um, conducted on the basis of his emails. Uh, Kirill Shamalov is, is the name of the individual, and and his email account had been hacked, and the emails sold to Roman Anin, um, and. This were emails going back over, I think, ten years or something. You know, there, there was a lot of information here, and um, it didn't look great for Putin's former son-in-law. So, I mean, there was a lot of emails from various public officials, uh, from the leaders of you know large private companies in Russia, offering Shamalov contracts, shares, a, a lot of multi-million-dollar transactions at below market prices and it looked like currying political favor. Uh, again, there, you know, on the one hand, yes, there is absolutely that kind of ethical question of is it right to hack some of the emails? Um, on the other hand, you know, there was a strong public interest argument here. Uh, so yeah, Patrick, even within legal circles, public interest has been used as an exception to most common uh, general principles, you know, which would not otherwise or are not otherwise coded into law. But private individuals or companies don't have the protections of public interest arguments. Uh, corporate investigators need to be extremely careful when dealing with data, when its origins are unclear, and be certain that nothing has been obtained illegally. Ultimately, if your client relies in court on data that later turns out to have been obtained illegally, that is going to be highly damaging to your client's case. Yeah, and actually this has come up in the past few years in England and Wales because the admissibility of hacked emails as evidence at trial was discussed in the case of um, Russell Hamer Investment Authority, Rakia versus Fahad Azima. The judgment for that came out in March 2021 from the English Court of Appeal. And basically what happened is that Fahad Azima, who's a US-Iranian businessman with interest in the aviation sector, who was the defendant in the case, accused the claimant of hacking his emails and publishing them on the dark web. And this came out in court when a journalist working for Rakia claimed to have discovered the hacked emails almost accidentally just through Google searches. But the judge um, quickly kind of asked a few questions and, and ended up ruling that this was a hack and leak job, which is where a, a company um, hacks someone and then leaks it onto the internet. And then once it's out in the public domain, they can then use it. You might normally expect that this would lead to the case being immediately thrown out or the claimant's case being undermined. But in this instance, the judge actually ruled that the material should still be admitted into evidence because of their impact on the case. That being said, this shouldn't be interpreted as carte blanche for parties to a litigation to break the law in order to obtain evidence. Um, the admissibility of hacked or stolen evidence still comes down to the judge's discretion in England and Wales and based on the balance of conflicting public interests. And in the vast majority of cases, material whose origins are unclear aren't going to be that useful in a court of law. Based on our conversation today, what would your key takeaways be for corporate investigators operating in this environment, or maybe for lawyers considering how to effectively use these big data leaks in their cases? We should expect more data to be leaked um, in the coming years. Um, and, you know, as, as, as corporate investigators and lawyers, um, this data points are one of the key areas that we go to when conducting investigations. But the most important takeaway for me, at least, is that 
This information can prove critical in investigations, whether in the world of journalism or in corporate intelligence. However, uh, verification and further cross-checking is needed before this data is relied on in legal proceedings. And this should be done by teams with the right experience and language skills. In recent years, we've seen some amazing innovations in data collection and open source research. And we as corporate investigators can learn something from the journalists and you know, use some of these innovations in our research. But of course, we have to do this appropriately with full consideration of where the data originates and the legal implications of this. Thank you both so much for joining me today. That was a really interesting conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. If you're in need of any support relating to the topics covered in today's episode, or are simply interested in hearing more about our range of legal and compliance services, do get in touch. And before you go, make sure to subscribe.